And Lord, what we're what we're talking about this morning is is really a, a great lead up to communion, because this passage invites us to really search our hearts. And Father, I pray that you would guide us as we as we open up your Word, and as we dive into uh, what what you have for us. Father, thank you for your grace that covers over our shame. In Jesus' name, Amen. When, we, uh, when I ask you to turn to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, um, I, I need to tell you that it, it, that passage doesn't show up in every Bible. And I just need to pause for a little, a little bit and tell you why it doesn't show up in every Bible. You may understand that when the Bible was first written, it was written by hand. Those handwritten copies soon wore out because people wanted to read those handwritten copies. And so more copies were copied and more copies were copied. And we have a Bible that is extraordinarily reliable, a Bible that really corresponds to what the original document said. Nevertheless, we don't have any of those original copies. All we have are the handwritten copies. And John 8, 1 through 11 does not appear in some of the older manuscripts. And that's why when you uh, turn to John 8, 1 through 11, there are brackets around that passage. The bracket goes from 753 to chapter 8, verse 11. So there have been times where I've asked people to turn to John 8, 1 through 11. They'll go, I don't have that in my Bible. And some of the versions of the Bible don't have it. Most do. But if you have one that doesn't have it, that's the reason why it doesn't show up there. I will tell you that most biblical scholars, and I would include myself in this, are convinced that John 8, 1 through 11 is part of the original text. It should be there. And so um, we're going to treat it that way this morning. But I just wanted to give you that bit of information just in case you said, wait a second, why in the world does my Bible not have John 8, 1 through 11? Well, that's the reason why. All right, so let's, let's think about this story. This is the story that is typically entitled The Woman Caught in Adultery. I'm not sure that's the best title for it, but uh, it appears in most, of the, most of, uh, of the Bibles if you've got titles over there. In the past 30 years, people have written extensively about the subject of shame. In the late 1980s, it was John Bradshaw. John Bradshaw was a very popular writer writing in this topic. More recently, it's been Brene Brown. And then this year, Kurt Thompson, uh, the psychiatrist, has gotten a lot of play on YouTube. All three of these writers write extensively about what shame is, how shame works, and how it can be corrected in our life. One of the most interesting things, I think, is what happened with Brene Brown. Because Brene Brown uh, is a social researcher at the University of Houston, I think. And uh, she was asked to do a TED Talk on the power of vulnerability and then a follow-up one on shame. And she thought, okay, who's going to listen to a social scientist who does hardcore statistical work? Who's going to listen to somebody talk about shame? Well, her combined videos uh, are like 34 million views. Well, she's a great communicator, but she's brought this subject of shame into 
a stark relief, I think. And so we want to we want to think about this subject of shame as we look at John 8, 1 through 11, because this story is a story about Jesus helping this woman overcome her shame. So what, what is shame? Shame, uh, according to these three guys who don't know each other, really, I mean, Kurt Thompson and Brene Brown, I think, know each other now, but shame they say, is the most toxic of all the emotions we feel. Of all the range of emotions that a human being feels, shame is the most toxic. Shame injects negativity into your soul, and it hinders you from love, from receiving it and giving it. Shame is like a poison that begins to cause us to be angry toward ourselves and express that inwardly. Shame plunges us into a a downward spiral of bad behaviors. And so you you look at shame, and and shame feels like this, these pictures on the screen. It feels like a hiding, like a badness, like I don't want anybody to know what I'm going through. What I find interesting as a dog owner is that dogs seem to evidence shame. Like I went into our, our house a while back and Sadie, who normally comes up to me expecting to be, you know, me to give her something to eat probably, or expecting me to pet her, her she hung her head and she slinked away. Uh, okay, what am I thinking? She did something, right? She did something. And so you see, you see the pictures like this, like, like, you know, these dogs have done something wrong, you know? Shame, shame is something that we, we sense a badness about, and we wonder, how do we deal with the badness? What our, our automatic response is, hide. I'm not letting anybody see this thing inside me that I know feels so bad and shame-filled. Here's the amazing thing about our Creator. The God of the universe loves to heal our shame. He loves to do that, and he does it through a relationship with Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to show you how this worked in John chapter 8, 1 through 11, and how this can work in our life as well. The story begins on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and we begin in 853, and we go up through verse 11, but it starts in 53, and it starts this way. After the Feast of Tabernacles, each person went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught. And the emphasis in the original text on this is caught in the act of adultery. And they placed this woman in her midst. Now, a little bit of background. The Feast of Tabernacles is, is over. And you remember that people came from all around, and they set up tents in the fields around Jerusalem. If you lived in Jerusalem, you went up to your roof, flat-topped roof, and you set up your tent on your roof, and everybody lived in tents to celebrate what Israel did in the wilderness for 40 years. So the feast is over. The tents have been taken down. The people are leaving. Jesus most likely stays with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus on the Mount of Olives in the village of Bethany. And if I were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, I would, have, I would have said, Jesus, tell us about the Holy Spirit. You made such a splash on the Temple Mount talking about the Spirit. Tell us about the Spirit. 
Well, the next morning, Jesus goes back to the Temple Mount, and it looks like what a festival looks like when it's over. There's all sorts of stuff up there on the Temple Mount. He begins to teach, and a lot of people are streaming to Jesus, and they want to listen to him. Meanwhile, down in the city, a horrible thing is taking place. A group of scribes and Pharisees have conspired to manipulate and crush a young woman, and they're going to do it by sexual exploitation. Their goal is to get Jesus to violate the law. They want Jesus to, they want to catch Jesus and trap him. But to do that, they've got to bring someone to him who's also violated the law. At this point, uh, it's not totally clear how this took place, but let me give you an educated guess about what happened. The Pharisees knew a man who had a mistress. And the Pharisees asked him to set up an early morning physical liaison with his mistress. That must have seemed a little strange to the man and the woman because the Pharisees were obsessed about keeping the law. The law obviously said, don't commit adultery. And the Pharisees are saying, look, we got this deal. Will you make this happen in your house like mid-morning? Can you do, do that for us? The man was all too happy to oblige. And using his smoothest and most manipulative words, he brings her over to his house. And while the man and his mistress are physically involved, the Pharisees, at just the right time, burst in on the couple while they're in the act. What happens next is the absolute height of hypocrisy. The woman is charged with a crime. The man is not. The woman is caught. The man gets to dress and exit and go into the city. And this woman is caught not out of any concern about them, but because they want to trap Jesus. She is a pawn in a larger plan. I would assume that the men use condescending words. They handle her roughly. While she quickly wraps herself in the bedsheets, her lover dresses, leaves into the city, she's escorted outside, and she is horrified with the shame of being publicly manhandled through the streets toward the temple. When she realizes that she's being taken up onto the temple, she is crushed by the feelings of shame. She's thinking, no, no, not, not up there, not up there. The men practically lift her up on her elbows, up the 31 steps into the temple. And there's more steps that she has to be taken up. And now she's up on top of the temple mount. And she's being taken toward Jesus, who is teaching the people on top of the temple mount. All eyes are on her as she approaches, as they, they bring her to Jesus. And the people who are, who are listening to Jesus, they look at her they look away and they melt away into another area of the Temple Mount. And now it's just the woman and the Pharisees and scribes and Jesus. Man, she is seized with a crushing pain. She'd been set up. Now, I want you to think about how, how she felt from the first century standards. Um, you know, in, in our culture, we 
for right or wrong, for good or bad, don't think much about nakedness. That was not true in the ancient culture. In the ancient culture, uh, nakedness was regarded as especially shameful. Herodotus records a story of Gyges, the king of Lydia. And one evening, Gyges saw the nakedness of Candele's wife. And according to ancient Lydian law, somebody had to die. Either Gyges had to die or commit suicide, or Candeles had to die or commit suicide. But if you looked upon the nakedness of somebody else, you could not live. That's how shameful nakedness was regarded in the ancient world. And it was regarded that way by the Jews in the first century. So we in our 21st century mindset can't completely identify with how enormously shameful this was for her, but we can probably come pretty close. Second, remember, this is not a simple betrayer, uh, betrayal of lover and beloved. This is a systemic abuse by people who wanted power. And it was the Pharisees doing this. I mean, the Pharisees were the shepherds. You, you, you would have thought the Pharisees would have been the one who would protect people who had been struggling with something, that they would have shepherded, shepherded them into a better place. But they're the ones who have initiated this whole thing. These are narcissistic, power-hungry people. They're false shepherds. And now comes the confrontation. Um, it's now just the leaders and Jesus and the spokesmen for the scribes and Pharisees begin to speak. And here's what they say. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Do you hear the manipulation? They want to kill Jesus. They want to kill the woman. And this person with condescendingly obnoxious words says, teacher, teacher. It's hypocrisy. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So, what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. As they say this, I wonder if the scribes and the Pharisees there are looking over at the pile of stones that was laid up on the Temple Mount because the Temple Mount uh, apparently had piles of stones on it because the Old Testament did say that under certain circumstances, people could and should be stoned. So the people are looking at the stones. I wonder if somebody had a stone in their hand. I wonder if somebody is fingering the stone thinking, I just can't wait to exercise judgment. They think they're, they put Jesus in a no-win no dilemma because if Jesus shows grace, they're going to say he's not really following the law. If Jesus enforces the letter of the law, he's going to lose all sorts of popularity among the people. They think they've got him in a no-win situation. Either way, his ministry will be invalidated. At least that's what they think. But Jesus does something very strange. Jesus bends down, and he begins to write in the, the dust, the dirt, the, the silt on top of the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount had these beautiful limestone, uh, limestone base, a floor. It was beautiful. It was nicely interlaid. But, of course, after a festival, there was all sorts of grit and dirt and sand that was on the Temple Mount, and you could literally draw on top of the Temple Mount and the grit and the sand that was there. And he begins to draw on top of the Temple Mount. What's he drawing? 
Well, we, we can't say for sure, but we can make a really good educated guess. If you look at the Old Testament and you look at verses like Exodus 31.18 and Deuteronomy 9.10 and, and New Testament, Luke 11.20, what you realize is that the term finger of God is a term that denotes the power of God, who is the king. So when Moses tried to, uh, when, when the Egyptians tried to duplicate Moses' miracles, the Egyptian uh, magician said, we can't do this. This is the finger of God. This is the power of God. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, uh, it came by the finger of God, by the power of God. When Jesus uh, is doing miracles in Luke eleven twenty, he talks about the finger of God, the power of God being a sign that the kingdom has come. And so what Jesus is doing there on the Temple Mount is he is making a declaration, I am God and I am sovereign over the application of the Old Testament law. So by writing on the floor, he's saying, I'm God and I am sovereign over the application of the Old Testament law. I think he's probably writing out the Ten Commandments. He's writing out number one, number two, number three. There's a sense in the passage that they're waiting, waiting with frustration, waiting with tension. And then he gets up to number seven. And uh, he says, um, he gets up to the, to the commandment about, about adultery. And uh, he says, um, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. That was a brilliant response. Brilliant response. First, he permits them to fulfill the law. He says, that's the law. Go. Okay, you can do it. That's the law. You're free to do the law. However, he forces them into a serious self-assessment. Let me ask you, are Pharisees going to self-assess? These guys are always in denial. And so he, he includes something. He says, be the first to throw a stone. The first to throw a stone. You can fulfill the law if you want to, but let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw the stone. So imagine there's a guy there who's he's got the stone, and theoretically, imagine a guy's got the stone, and he winds up getting ready to do it. One of the other Pharisees can say, yeah, right. I know you. I know you. Jesus is forcing them to rank order their sense of righteousness. And so these Pharisees realize they, they've, been, they've been had. He stuns them in, into silence. And the men begin to go away one by one. They set down their stones on the rock pile and they leave one by one, beginning with the older ones who maybe had been beaten up by life a little bit more and are in less denial than the younger ones were. And now Jesus um, does something else. He, he draws in the sand, he confronts the Pharisees, and now he comforts the woman with a wonderful blend of grace and truth. Now think about her mood. She's mortified with shame. She thought she was going to die. She, she really did. She thought, these are the last moments of my life. I am going to be killed right here up on the Temple Mount. I'm going to be killed. 
She thought she was going to die. But now the people have left one by one, and now she's alone with Jesus. Jesus now stands up another time. First time it was to confront the evil of the Pharisees. Now the second time it is for ministry, and he says, woman, um, where are they? Where are they? Remember, when Jesus uses the term woman, it's not like, like a derogatory term. It is a term of polite address. Jesus said that to his mom in John chapter 2. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Look, Jesus does this wonderful expression of grace and truth. Um, in, his, in his grace, truth expression, he does what John said was true of him in John 1.14. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace always creates the environment where truth can be heard. He created an environment for this woman, an environment of safety, an environment of unconditional regard, an environment of respect, an environment of, of esteem, even though he knows exactly what she was caught in the process of doing. He creates an environment of grace. And in that environment of grace, he expresses truth. In grace, he says, I don't condemn you either. In truth, he says, go and sin no more. Full of grace and truth. The woman is now able to bring her deepest shame into fellowship with God. That's what happened right, right up there on the Temple Mount. The woman was able to entrust her soul to Jesus who knew what she had done and by entrusting her soul to Jesus, she enters into a healing of the shame that had crushed her. We don't know what happened next, but we can also venture another educated guess. The woman is wrapped most likely in the bedsheet around, wrapped tightly around herself, and now she begins to venture home. Jesus gave her a command. What was the command? Go. Go and sin no more. Go. Where, where are you going to go? Most likely back to my home. What does that mean? That means publicly she is walking with a bedsheet back down the road to her home by the people who had seen her being yanked up to the Temple Mount. She's going back there. And in that command, go, what did Jesus give to her? Story. The story was a story of healing from shame. Because as she's going, people, are you okay? What happened? Like what, like, what took place? Like, what happened up there on the Temple Mount? Now she's got a story to tell. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That command, in that command, she has a story to tell. It's a story of sin and forgiveness. It's a story of shame and then honor. It's a story of abuse and then healing. It's a story of death and a new life. And for the rest of her life, the defining moment was the moment when she was about to die and Jesus covered over her shame. This is the fifth time in the Gospel of John where Jesus has given a command that leads to a story. Now let's think about the main idea of this story. The main idea of this story addresses the shame of the woman. You, know, you can read this Years and years and years and think, all right, what's the main idea of this story? The main idea of this story addresses the shame of this woman and what happens when we encounter 
shame. To ex the main idea in a nutshell is this. If you want to experience healing from shame, you have to bring the bad parts of yourself into the light, okay? You have to bring the bad parts of yourself into the light, into fellowship with Jesus. All of us have bad parts. All of us have tried to hide those bad parts. Sometimes we are successful in doing that. Sometimes we're not. We want to hide them from our spouse. We want to hide them from our kids. We want to hide them from ourselves. We want to hide them from our friends, from our Christian community, from our work associates. All of us have bad parts. All of us try to hide. And in the hiding of the bad parts, we encounter shame. And to experience healing, you've got to bring the bad parts into the light, into fellowship with the risen Christ. And then you allow him to minister his grace. And what's the outcome? The outcome is as Jesus does this work, you receive a new story, and it's a story of transformation. We have to take the bad parts and bring them into fellowship with Jesus but we also have to take the healing that we've experienced and share that with at least somebody. I'm telling you, the woman on the way home uh, had to begin to tell her story because people were asking her, we thought you were going to die. What happened? And she tells, she tells her story. Let me give you four principles about shame that comes from the research of John Bradshaw, Brene Brown, and Kurt Thompson. And these are very consistent with, with the scriptures. I like Brene Brown the best uh, because her work is very science-based work. Um, she's doing science-based research, statistical research, and she does a very good job with it. So here's principle number one. Shame erodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. Now think about that for a second. <clears throat> shame speaks with a condemning voice. Shame says, you'll never change. You're stuck. You're a loser. You've always been a loser. Shame disables the very part of us that believes we can change. And so it keeps us, it keeps us stuck. You can imagine the woman thought she was stuck. She was stuck. She's in a relationship with a guy who manipulates her and coerces her. He's in cahoots with the Pharisees. It'd be easy to think, I'm stuck. The only time I'm going to find love is with people who might, might harm me. You can imagine her self-talk. I'm no good. I'll never find love. Principle number two, shame always goes underground. If you don't share it, it always goes underground. And shame, when it goes underground, morphs into a monster of pain and heartache. So we hide. Uh, shame can't be voiced. Shame can't be brought into the light. Here was what John Bradshaw says, shame becomes toxic when it faces premature exposure. Think about the woman up on the Temple Mount. You know, there's, there's this exposure. Everybody up there knows what happened, and she's being exposed. And for that shame was enormously toxic to her. What happens when Jesus applies grace and truth? Uh, her shame is exposed in, some, in front of somebody who's loving and safe and kind, and so she was able to take that shame and begin to bring it toward the light. 
but shame always goes underground in the absence of that. Here's principle number three. Healing your shame requires vulnerability to share and let go of the false story of who we think we are. I love this little graphic here, you know, because, you know, sometimes holding on does more damage than letting go. When I was growing up, one of my Boy Scout leaders uh, would tell us about how to, how to handle ropes. And he would raise up his hand telling us how to handle ropes. And he had a thumb and a forefinger, but he did not have his other three fingers on his hand. He says, guys, guys, in handling ropes, you got to know when to hold on and you got to know when to let go. He said, I tried to hold on to a rope and the rope took my, my three fingers on. Guess what every boy thought, you know, when we saw that scout leader say that? I'm not going to hold on to a rope like that if I need to let go. That was a pretty vivid demonstration. And so principle <clears throat> number three is this idea that uh, we need to let go of the false story of who we think we are. And the false story in shame is a story of our badness. There's something something bad inside us. Um, it's like, you know, you say in shame, it's not like you say I messed up, but I am a mess up. It's not like you say I lost, you say I'm a loser. It's not like you say I'm guilty, it's more like you say I'm flawed at my core. That's a false story. And in Jesus, you get to rewrite that story as something fundamentally different, but you got to be willing to let go of that false story. And sometimes that false story comes out of us so easily that it feels like an old pair of blue jeans. We just wear it so easily. We just say it. We just say it. You know, I have the privilege of being a counselor. And so I hear very personal stories that people tell me about shame. I cannot tell you the number of times I've had people say, I'm just no good. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. What is that? That's the false story that shame sends. And then the next one is this. Grace means that all of our mistakes, and that means all of them, now serve a transcendent purpose. They don't fuel shame anymore. No, instead, they're part of the story of redemption and transformation. Remember how stories work. Stories always have a jagged storyline. Like, like what, what, if you, what if you went to a movie and the story was this really good person lived a really good life. They got better. They became even more awesome. And then life got even better than that. And then they lived happily ever after. How would you think, what do you think about that story? I'm not going to see that movie if I know that's, that's the story. Because that, that, that's not how stories work. You know, the way stories work is we got a main character. And the main character's got a problem. And the main character receives a guide to help them overcome that problem. And then the main character has another series of problems, but the guide helps them overcome those series of problems. And then we get to a point where there's a resolution where the person has grown through their problems as a result of the guide. That's the story of the Bible. Human race had a problem. A series of guides come along, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus. Now the human race 
moves into a, a place, uh, from a place of failure to a place of, of redemption. Those who receive Jesus are redeemed, moving toward an incredible future. This woman got a story, a story of pain and shame and failure, and yet the guide came, Jesus came, and began to redeem her of those things so that she has a new story. And grace means all of our mistakes now serve the transcendent purpose of glorifying the one who gave us that new story. So here's, here's the big idea again. To experience healing from shame, you must bring the bad parts of yourself into the light, into fellowship with Jesus, and allow the resurrected Jesus to minister His grace. So with that in mind, several, some takeaways. Now, the, the, the takeaways are going to flow from the main characters of this story. So takeaway number one is the example of Jesus. And the example of Jesus is this. Let's allow God to be God and to be Lord over our bodies. Um, Jesus is the one who stands up there, kneels down, writes out the Ten Commandments, affirming that he is the author of the Ten Commandments and that he is the one who can interpret how they're applied. And so one of the ways to apply this, this story is let God be God with regard to your body and with regard to your sexuality. Now, here's the thing about, about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not arbitrary. Like, God is not saying, I wonder how the human race will function. I know, ten arbitrary rules. Doesn't work that way. The Ten Commandments flow out of the fullness of the character of God. And the God who made us gets to decide how we use our bodies. And our sexuality is a tremendous gift, a powerful gift from the God of the universe. And God says, I want you to submit your bodies, including your sexuality, to me. And you let me tell you how to best manage this incredibly beneficial gift that I have given you. So this is how Paul states it in 1 Thessalonians 4. You know what instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now you think, okay, so uh, our culture is kind of different, right? Because we live in the 21st century, we're more enlightened. They lived back there in the first century, they weren't as enlightened. No. <laughs> human beings are human beings. And everything that we face in the 21st century, they faced in the first century. What Paul is saying is, I want you Thessalonians to be countercultural in the way that you use your sexuality. You be countercultural. And what I want you to do is I want you to abstain from sexual immorality. That was just as radical back then as it is now. But look, the Christian faith is always about being countercultural. And he calls us to be countercultural with regard to our sexuality and invest it in the way that flows from his character. Here's a second pathway to healing from shame. Second pathway is this. We take the example of the woman. And her example is, okay, let's bring our brokenness then into, into fellowship with Jesus. 
Remember, she's abused by men who didn't care one whit about her. They wanted to establish their power. She was abused by men where there was a power differential. Now, here's the thing about power differentials. Power differentials occur when somebody has power sociologically over somebody else, a power relationship, an employer, employee, a teacher, student, a counselor, counselee, a coach, player, and those are all power differential relationships. And whenever you're in a power differential relationship and the person with power abuses that power, it becomes especially painful and it generates shame because you automatically feel, well, th they have the power, they're probably good. I don't have the power, uh, and what they did felt bad to me, but, but they're probably good people, but they did something that felt bad to me. That mean, must mean I'm bad. And often in power differential situations, the shame is, is increased. So what Jesus does is creates this safe, this safe place for her to come, come clean about her shame. I'm challenging you to find a place like that. Find a place like that. I recently read the book called Even in Our Darkness by Jack Deere. Okay, that guy on the right is a great guy. When I was 24 years old and I was in graduate school, that guy taught me Hebrew. And he was my favorite teacher of all. Tremendous guy. Guy was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. And in this book, he writes about the horrible pain that he went through as a child and then in his marriage with a spouse who was an alcoholic. I read that book. I reread it. I reread it again. And I reread it again, parts of it, parts of four times. Because the way that he brought the shame of his life into fellowship with Jesus really encouraged me. It was just so well done. On a completely different note, here is uh, a woman, Anahita Parson, who grew up in a horribly abusive home in Tehran, Iran. And her book describes her going from Iran as a refugee hiking through the mountains into Turkey and how she was abused by successive husbands and the shame that she had and what happened when she finally brought her shame into the light of Christ and how she was transformed by Jesus. Powerful story. I read parts of that book several times because of the way she described how she brought her shame into the light. I'm telling you, if, if, you, if you encounter some level of shame, bring it into the light. You ask that question, okay, so is Grace Community Church a genuinely safe place for that? Is it a safe place for that? Well, I'll tell you, for the last 13 years, every other Monday night, we have people who tell their, their Celebrate Recovery story, their healing story, and they're taking their shame, they're bringing that shame into the light, into a place of grace and acceptance. Grace has been that for the past 13 years a safe place for people to bring their shame into the light. Our son was sitting in the front row about nine years ago when 
I just told our congregation, hey, you know what happened in our family this past weekend? Our son was arrested for possession of drugs and uh, put in jail. Jared gave me, gave me permission to say that. Everybody knew it because it was in the newspaper. And 30 people rushed over to Jared. said, Jared, that could have been me. That should have been me. That was me when I was your age. And so, you know, when Jared hears about, you know, um, the church being a safe place, he encountered that here. You've got to bring your shame into the light to find healing. And here's the third pathway. It comes from the example of the Pharisees. If you misuse power, you need repentance. If you're in a place right now where you're misusing power, you need to repent. Let me tell you an obvious way that people misuse power. If you are supporting the pornography industry by viewing pornography, you, by virtue of your viewing that pornography, are participating in the abuse of the women and sometimes the men who are being depicted in those pictures. But it could be many ways that, you're, that you are um, abusing your position as a person in authority. You need repentance. You need to repent and to confess and to change and to begin living a new life. The Pharisees didn't do that, at least not then. Some did it later after, the, after Pentecost. Some did it later. And some of those that a- after Pentecost, they wonderfully came to Christ, but they don't do it yet because they're still caught up in their sin. When Brene Brown did her famous TED Talk, uh, I think six, seven years ago, she had no idea that people would respond to her message. 34 million views, and it continues to grow. People need to understand that the ultimate source of healing from shame is coming to Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. As we make our transition now to communion, I'd like to just have there be a time of silence where you have the opportunity to take any parts of yourself that feel bad and bring them into fellowship with Jesus. Just say, Lord Jesus, here, here are my areas, that I, the areas I struggle with, and I'm just I'm bringing them to you. I need healing from these areas. Let's have a moment of silence where we can do that, and then we'll begin to move into communion. Lord Jesus, we want to say that we love you and we thank you for your amazing blend of grace and truth. The grace that opens our ears to the possibility of unconditional love and the truth that brings us to a better place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you show us that unconditional love that allows for the healing of those parts of us we hide. Father God, I want to pray that you would bring healing to people in the room this morning who have covered over some of those bad places, hid them, 
and struggle with pain over that. Lord, bring healing. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, uh, this bread represents my body broken for you. Take this in memory of me. He also took the, the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Take this in memory of me. At Grace, when you come forward, uh, we dip the bread in the cup and the, and the juice and we come to kneel because we want this to be a thing where you, you use your body to mirror the humility in your soul. And if you've noticed something in your life, something you've been hiding that you want to bring into the light, use this time as a time to bring that into the light and say, Jesus, will you please heal the shame of this situation? Union table as you feel led.